Okay, let's be honest. Sex is one of the most uh, common thoughts in uh, most every human being's mind. And probably one of the least talked about subjects in the church. You know, there's something about uh, the intimacy of sex that causes us in the church to sort of corporately blush when the subject arises. Even though we're bombarded with hundreds of messages every day about sex. And even though it's an important part of what it means to be human, there's something about it that makes us uneasy. This morning at the first service, uh, the reader accidentally uh, read Exodus 5 instead of Deuteronomy 5. And it's about uh, the children of Israel in Egypt and the bricks out of straw and all of that. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, you know, I wanted to think, I wanted to stand up and say, you know, I think maybe this is a word from the Lord that I need to talk about something else. Uh, I really am sensing that, you know. But it didn't happen. You know, when the, when the church talks about sex, particularly in a public gathering like we're in today, there, you might feel a tendency to, to sort of go back to junior high school, you know, with the when you're watching the sex education films, and you know the kind of interesting in that you want to learn a little bit, but you're embarrassed to act like they're any big deal. But the truth is, it's a very big deal. In fact, it is such a big deal that of all the things that God could say to us in these ten brief commandments, sex is one of them. Sex is addressed in the Ten Commandments because God created us as sexual beings. Human sexuality is important to God. Now, it might surprise you, as it does a lot of other people, as someone has said, God is pro-sex. The Bible speaks often about the blessing of sex as a gift of God to his creatures. And if God wasn't pro-sex, he wouldn't have created us with the sexual impulses that we have. You know, the church often, in in an attempt to, to help people sort of regulate their their sexual life, we have often sent the mixed message. And we say, especially to young people, sex is dirty. That's something you ought to save for marriage. And then we wonder why they're so confused about it. You know, we have have this sense that, you know, that that maybe sex came into the world with sin. But nothing could be further from the truth. There may be some gods who really don't care anything about our bodies, how we use them or abuse them, because all they care about are things spiritual. But the God of Israel and the God of the church is clearly opinionated about our bodies and about what we do with them. Sex is a part of God's perfect plan in creation. When sin entered the world, sex, like, like everything else in God's good and blessed creation, was corrupted. And because of that, sex, like all these other things, became obsessions for us. That doesn't make it any less a part of God's creative plan. It simply means that like all the other gifts of God, we now need guidelines and help and parameters about sex. It's because we are masters at at shading and distorting the beautiful things that God has created that the seventh commandment is given to us. 
we need this commandment because we live as Israel does in a culture obsessed with sex. But the problem, as one person has stated, the problem with our sex-saturated society is not that we think too much about sex, but it's that we think about it so poorly. We have a warped view of it. That's why it's important for us to understand as we address this commandment that God is concerned not only with sexual promiscuity after marriage. God is concerned with the sexual activity of everyone, whether married or single. The scriptures, you in the old language use the term fornication. We tend to talk about premarital sex. But it is, it is sex engaged by two people who are not married. And I think that this commandment addresses any type of sexual relationship that is outside the bounds of a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage. But let's not kid ourselves. We need to address the subject of sex because the problem is not just out there somewhere. It's in here too. Sexual promiscuity and sexual immorality are problems for the church as well as the world. Studies tell us that in far too many places and far too many times, especially now in this, in this age and culture, that Christians are only slightly less involved in sexually immoral behavior than non-Christians. Opinions about sexual issues don't seem to vary as much as you might think between people in the church and people outside of it. And that ought to frighten us. But maybe it doesn't surprise us. Because remember, these commandments are not given first and foremost to the world at large. They are given first and foremost to God's So God gives us the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery in order to help us know how to live as sexual beings. The question that we then have to address is, why? Why does God prohibit indiscriminate sexual activity? Why does God want to limit our enjoyment? Why is God so prudish about people just expressing themselves? Why is God concerned about how we use this gift? It's because God knows that no matter how we may argue it, sexual immorality always causes deep damage to us. You know, people argue that we, we only feel guilty because society or the church or maybe family or friends cause us to feel guilty about sex. If the Bible didn't command us against adultery, if people didn't talk about it in such negative terms, we'd be just fine. Christians and culture, they're the ones who make this a problem. And if they just shut up and keep their opinions to themselves, stop making everyone live up to their unreasonable standards, all this guilt and stuff, it would just dissipate. But our standards are not the cause of the problem. It's not even God's commandment that's the cause of the problem. It's not that still make us feel guilty. Sexual immorality is a problem because it's antithetical to the way God creates us. Like everything else in the Bible, 
This commandment about adultery isn't true because it's in the Bible. It's in the Bible because it's true. This command isn't best for us because it's in the Bible. It's in the Bible because it's best for us. It's not a problem because God says it's a problem. God says it's a problem because it's painful and destructive and disastrous to us. You can, you can take a bottle of poison and put a milk label on it. But if you drink what's in the bottle, it's still going to kill you. So God gives us this warning because of the damage that sexual sin causes us. We may not be willing to admit it, but our sexual sin causes damage to other people. Sex is so much more than just a physical act. It is a God-ordained means of communicating love. It is a, a mutually enjoyable means of sealing a commitment. It's the ultimate, one of the ultimate expressions of human vulnerability and trust. And you can see why adultery can be such a serious offense. A person who commits this sin is not just violating an oath. They're violating another person. It's not the adulterous sexual relationship itself that is so destructive. It's the accompanying deceit and dishonesty and disloyalty that shatters a marriage and threatens the self-esteem of the violated person. You know, have you ever wondered why in, in places like Hollywood, for instance, where promiscuity is, is publicly embraced and often flaunted, and where many people pride themselves on being sexually active and where, where extramarital encounters just seem to be common, where people want, are saying, hey, we just want to be free and, and have some fun. Have you ever wondered why in those settings people still get angry and feel hurt and betrayed and marriages still fall apart when a spouse or a partner is unfaithful? I mean, if it's just about having fun, why the hurt? Why the feeling of betrayal? Because it's not just about feeling free to do what you want. It's not really about the act of sex. It's about the intimacy and the vulnerability and the trust that is inherent in a sexual relationship. And adultery and sexual immorality violates all of that. Adultery causes pain. And in the sexual, in any kind of sexual sin, the truth is everybody loses. Everybody suffers. Everyone involved is scarred. And this commandment is telling us that sex outside of the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman always causes pain. Ask anyone who has had to deal with, with a spouse's infidelity. Tremendous pain for other people. And let's not forget the pain that that is caused to, to the most impressionable people in our families or in our society, particularly our children. If adults find it difficult to cope with infidelity, how much more children who don't have near the coping mechanisms that we do? You might say, well, they're kids, you know, they're resilient, they'll get over it. 
how self-centered can you be? The 1998 movie, Hope Floats, is a movie starring uh, Sandra Bullock as a woman struggling to recover from her husband's infidelity. The movie chronicles she and her daughters attempt to cope with the problems caused by the breakup of their family. And toward the end of the movie, she and her husband are arguing vehemently in front of their daughter about the pain and deceit and anger that his adultery has caused. And she says to him, I would have stayed with you forever. I would have turned myself inside out for you. But he just brushes it off. He says, look, I found happiness for myself, and I'm going to pursue it. Eventually, she tells him to leave, since she still has the best part of him anyway, their daughter. And he turns to go, and as he walks down the steps and out the door, this little girl goes racing after him, running out to the car behind him. says, Daddy, I'm coming with you. Daddy, take me with you. No, I, I can't take you right now. I promise I'll come back for you, but I, I'm starting a new life with Connie now, and we need to just have our own life. Drive away. Leaving her sobbing, devastated. Sexual immorality causes deep pain to other people. But don't be deceived. However we view it, it causes deep pain to the people who are involved in it too. In fact, I believe that it will eventually eat us alive if we don't deal with it. I think one of the most surprising consequences of sexual sin is how it impairs our, our ability to experience long-term healthy relationships. It's impossible to feel connected to, to the person or the persons with whom you're sexually involved and, and then to have them just move on and you act as though no big deal. I mean, we might tell ourselves that. But there's always a feeling of rejection. And if we get to the place where we become so sexually active that we don't feel the rejection anymore, then there are even deeper issues that are going on inside of us even deeper problems, because we are conditioning ourselves to feel nothing toward other people, training our minds and our spirits and our souls that vulnerability and trust don't mean anything. And you might think, well, I can turn that kind of stuff on and off, but you can't. You might think, well, you can be involved with someone, some other people, without any strings attached, and, and then sometime down the road when I find the right person, you know, I'll, I'll open up my heart to them again and, you know, and I'll, I'll be vulnerable and I'll trust them. But it doesn't work that way. It's not that easy. It's difficult to retrain ourselves about that kind of thinking when you've deadened yourself to other people. It is very, very difficult to come back to life. Maybe one of the most devastating elements of sexual sin in the lives of those who commit it is living with such deep regrets for the consequences of that sin. We look back, we look back on our lives and we see what we've done to others, what we've done to ourselves. And this sin of deception injures the ability to lead truthful lives because almost invariably, sexual sin of almost every kind 
has inherently a part of it deception. And it's very difficult to live a double life. Trying to live a double life will eventually kill us. And let's not think that that sexual immorality doesn't affect our relationship with God. The prophets connect adultery and sexual immorality to stealing and murder and lying and greed and idol worship and coveting. Uh, There's a reason we call it cheating. Adultery is a God issue. It's not just a code of sexual ethics. It's not just a matter of morals. You know, someone has said perhaps it's not just a coincidence that our synonym for adultery is infidelity, which is also a synonym for atheism. Maybe there's a connection there. Dennis Kinlaw says that there's an important link between our purity and physical relationships and our purity and spiritual relationships. It's clear biblically that God's purposes for us are tied up with our sexuality. And he says, I've noticed a startling truth in the history of the church, that the Holy Spirit has a particular affinity for people who are very careful in the sexual aspect of their lives. He says, maybe human sexuality is important to God because it's a prime symbol of the depth of intimacy that God desires with every human being. Proverbs says, the one who commits adultery is an utter fool, destroys his own soul. So the question is, what do we do about it? What can we do to prevent sexual immorality from from creeping into our lives? I think it comes back to our relationships. We need to be relationally pure as individuals. We need to guard our hearts. Jesus tells us that sexual immorality rarely begins with the act of sex. Sexual immorality, like all other sin, begins with the thoughts of our mind. There's always other stuff going on inside of us long before it comes out in any kind of activity. And so Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus is telling us that it's not limited to to intercourse with someone who isn't our spouse. It's also lusting after someone who isn't our spouse. What does it mean to lust? I don't think it's that first casual look. But I think it probably is the second or the third or the fourth look. The undressing, a conscious fantasy of having a sexual relationship with that person. And Jesus says, it's a very dangerous place to be. Adulterous relationships and sexual immorality typically don't begin with sex. They almost always begin with an emotional, relational connection. Spend some time together, talk, connect, share a little flirtatious banter. Maybe there's some innocent touching It moves to to sharing secrets secrets with one another, sharing dreams and ideals. And it isn't long before you're telling this other person about the problems with your marriage, sharing intimate secrets. And each step creates more and more of an emotional bond until all of a sudden you wake up in bed together. It came out, didn't set out to commit adultery, but it happened because another woman or another man 
became for you what only your spouse should be. I think that's one of the reasons why we need to be so careful about the internet and email and chat rooms. They can be so dangerous because they make it easier for people to engage in the emotional stages of infidelity. Just this week, there was a Dear Abby column written by a man who's, who said his wife met a guy on MySpace. And he said they are self-declared best buds. And they're planning to now meet face-to-face, and the husband is wondering if he has a right to feel angry. And yeah, he does. I mean, he, has, he, he said he's, he's worried about the bond that they've established, and he ought to be. One secular psychiatrist said that emotional infidelity can inflict as much, if not more, hurt and pain and suffering as physical infidelity. An emotional bond with someone of the opposite sex who is not your spouse is so dangerous because it seems to address a sense of longing that you might feel in your soul. There's a sense of, of feeling that there's some maybe some magic out there and, and this experience will, will help you find it. And that's why at the height or the depth of such a relationship, people will forget their children, their sacred vows, their jobs, their future, God. That's why Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. I don't think he's speaking literally. If he were, we'd be a church full of blind, handless people, I suspect. But he's saying that you need to remove from yourself those things and people and places that tempt you. And this is true whether you're married or single. If someone tempts you to sexual sin, run away from them. I think he's saying that if someone or something, and maybe at a particular place of business, tempts you, go shop somewhere else, even if it's less convenient and more expensive. I think Jesus is saying that if someone or something at work has a hold over you that is unhealthy, you're better off to quit your job and move somewhere else than to stay put and to put yourself and your marriage in jeopardy. And that's why Jesus says that we need to be careful at the level of the mind and the level of the emotions. We need to set mental and physical boundaries. And we need to refuse ever have a relationship with someone of the opposite sex in a way that should be reserved only for your spouse. And I think one of the most powerful safeguards in this area of emotional bonding that often leads to physical adultery is listening to your spouse or to people that you trust. Listen to their concerns about that other person And if your wife or your husband or your friend says, that person's behavior toward you sends red flags up for me, listen and run. But it's not just about us personally. We also need to be relationally connected as a couple. Scripture tells us that our bodies are not our own. They now, in marriage, belong to our spouse. And one of the things that he's telling us is that you can't think selfishly about your body and and have a healthy marriage. You're always thinking about your spouse's needs. I think submission is not something just reserved for a wife. 
A good and healthy marriage always involves mutual submission, mutual respect, mutual commitments. And no human being should be more important to you than your spouse. And you know if your spouse is, is, is most important to you if you listen to them, if you value them and their opinion, if you give them your time and your energy, if you're continually thinking of ways to, to bless them and to encourage them and to sacrifice for them, if you're willingly looking for ways to submit to them. Relationships don't happen automatically. To talk to each other, even if the conversations are painful. And don't neglect the physical elements of your relationship. Husbands and wives need to be sensitive to your spouse's need for communication and touch and intimacy and sexual activity. Commit yourselves to talk and to listen about life's ups and downs, about your fears and dreams, and commit yourselves to honesty with one another. Commit yourselves to enjoying the gift of sex that God has given you in the context of marriage. And commit to creating the deepest emotional bond that two human beings could ever create. But the circle moves out even more. Because we not only need to think about what's going on inside of us and think about our relationship as a couple, but also we need to be relationally concerned as a church. As Christians, our lives are never just about us. And our marriages are never just about us. The church is always involved. And that includes our commitments to fidelity and to sexual morality. Think for a moment about a wedding. You know, I, I've done a lot of weddings, performed a lot of wedding ceremonies in my life, and there have been a lot of differences in them, but the one constant is that there are always witnesses. Even the smallest ceremony possible has to have at least two witnesses. Because when a thing is done, I've got a piece of paper that has to be signed by two witnesses. And it's not legal until they sign it. Marriage is not just personal, especially not in the church. We work for each other. We help each other. We keep each other in line. We encourage each other. We remind each other sometimes of our vows and our commitments. And if we see someone developing an unhealthy relationship with someone of the opposite sex that's not their spouse, we have an obligation to go to them and to let them know our concerns. You have to do that kind of thing in a spirit of love and kindness and with a, a certain amount of fear and trembling. But we do it because we care. And to not do it indicates that we're just not all that interested. We might worry the person will get mad at us. Well, you know, none of us like to have people mad at us, but far better than to damage their lives. And we worry maybe we'll be wrong. Well, then approach it that way. That's better off than ignoring what concerns us. And I know there might be some people who take this as a license to tell people everything to think about them. That's certainly not the point. But I suspect we are much more apt to say less than to say too much. And you'll also notice in a wedding that as the couple stands and, and recites their vows to each other, when they're done, the minister says to the people who are present witnessing, 
because of the vows that they have shared before God and before you, I announce that they are husband and wife. And at the end of that pronouncement is a sentence that you've probably heard hundreds of times and probably haven't thought that much about. But at the end of that pronouncement, the officiant says, Now, those whom God has joined together, let no one separate. And what does that mean? Well, in essence, he's saying, Look, people, don't mess with this couple. If you do anything to tear them apart, God if your actions or your words put a crack in their relationship, I pity you. If you do something or you say something that leads to or encourages the erosion of the vows that they have just taken with each other, then you need to know that you stand under the judgment of Almighty God. It's a serious thing. Stop and think for a moment. If, if no one would ever be willing to come between a married couple. Adultery would never take place. But I think we also need to realize that in the times when sexual immorality is revealed, that we as a church have the choice of being judgmental or being supported. And I know it's a fine line to walk because we don't want to condone the sin, but we also want to encourage those who are hurting. And I believe that that is a big part of our role as a church, to be supportive of people who are struggling and hurting and wondering if they're going to be rejected because of what's happened. I once asked a woman who was working through the pain of a spouse that had committed adultery, if she could tell the church any, if she could tell the church something to, that would help her, what would it be? And her answer was pretty simple. She said, just tell people not to be afraid to let me know that they care. Just to say, I'm praying for you. I care about you. I'm here for you. I'm sorry for your pain. A gentle touch, a hug, Whatever we can do that communicates understanding and support and love is huge. And it takes courage and it's hard, but it means so much. And it doesn't mean that we condone what's been done, but it does mean that we are, of all places, a place of support. That's so important because even at the heart of this commandment is an understanding that, that sexual sin, in whatever form it may come, isn't the unpardonable sin. There is always hope for restoration if people want to be restored. And of course, that begins with God. It begins with an openness to God, with repentance before God, and receiving God's forgiveness. God is always willing to forgive us. Look at what he does with the woman at the well who's been married five times and is living with a man that's not her husband. Look at how Jesus responds to the woman caught in the actual act of adultery brought before him. 
to forgive. If we find ourselves living with pain and shame and guilt of what we've done, we know God forgives. We may have to live with some scars. Most, if not all of us, do because of our sin. But God can restore us because he forgives us. Christ is compassionate toward our weaknesses, all of them. But Christ also wants his people to be avenues of expressing forgiveness. And that will mean that that we too offer forgiveness to people who are hurting and feel guilt and shame. And for people who have been deeply hurt by others. In our marriages, in our relationships, we hurt each other. Sometimes those pains are so deep, we wonder if we'll ever be able to overcome them. We need to understand that we can if we let God work in us. And forgiveness is an essential element of healing. It begins with God's forgiveness of us, but it continues as we forgive ourselves and one another. And think of of the amazing hope that we give to a person who has committed an act that, that they know has hurt themselves and other people so deeply to say to them, I forgive you. Whether it's a spouse who says that, a child who says that, a parent who says that, or friends. But also think of what it does for us who may feel so deeply offended to say, I forgive you. It may take time. It may take a lot of time. Take a lot of God's work in us. But eventually, we work toward the point where we can say, I forgive you, because the only alternative is to not forgive. And that means that we are harboring bitterness and hatred and that will eat us alive. It takes time. It's not easy. But through the grace of God, even the most offended, deeply injured person can forgive. Now this this commandment, do not commit adultery, is simply saying to us, don't treat your sexuality lightly. And God gives us this command not to to harm us or to burden us or to prevent us from experiencing great things. It's to protect us and and to free us and to fill our lives with the highest joy of God's wondrous creation. That's what God desires for us. God wants us to enjoy the gifts he's given us. But that will only happen as we give to him all that we are, including including our sexuality. Father, thank you for this commandment. Thank you that you care enough speak to us and to warn us 
and to give us means of preventing deep pain and loss. Father, we also thank you for your forgiveness. We need your forgiveness. We pray today that as we open our hearts to you, whatever the situation may be, may we know the joy and the freedom of your forgiving grace. May we have courage in your grace and strength in your grace to walk in holiness and purity through the Holy Spirit. In his name we pray. Amen.